the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be looking at the Windsor Framework and what it will mean for businesses in Northern Ireland. And in the second half of the show, Joe Brennan of the Irish Times will explain the latest developments at Digicel, where Dennis O'Brien is set to see the majority staked bondholders in return for a financial restructuring of the telecoms business in the Caribbean. First to the Windsor Framework Agreements this week between Britain and the European Union. It breaks a deadlock over the past couple of years between the two sides over the operation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which had effectively placed a border in the Irish Sea post-Brexit between the North and Britain in terms of the movement of goods. The new arrangement breaks that deadlock, hopefully, and will ease the flow of goods into the North from Britain. But many questions remain to be answered, including if the DUP will support the deal and return to the Stormont executive. To tease out the various issues, I'm joined by Belfast-based consultant Mark O'Connell, by Stephen Kelly, who heads Manufacturing Northern Ireland, and by Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. I began by asking Cliff Taylor to run through the main changes involved in this framework. Yeah, there's been significant uh, difficulties and complaints from businesses in Northern Ireland about the way the protocol was operating or the way it, it might operate in future when some of the uh, temporary measures that have eased things run out in, in, the, in the next year or so. So the Windsor framework has gone, I think, a long way to answer the difficulties of businesses in Northern Ireland. The most fundamental change is this long-discussed idea of a green and red lane so that products coming from uh, Britain directly into the Northern Ireland market will in the future be able to go through a, a green lane uh, and move into the north with very limited checks. Goods then that are going into the EU, into the Republic of Ireland uh, and some onwards uh, to the rest of the EU are going to a red lane and, and have to go through the normal checks. But the idea is to, to greatly free up the flow of trade between Britain and the north to do away with a lot of the paperwork and to do away with a lot of the routine checks and the routine bureaucracy, which uh, businesses in the north had been uh, had been complaining loudly about, and which had caused some problems, there are specific changes then in relation to food and food products. This had been kind of a touchy area as well because the EU is particularly concerned, I suppose, and has very strict rules about food products uh, moving into its market. This had caused uh, you know specific problems for for supermarkets in, in Northern Ireland. And also for kind of, I suppose, landmark products for, for products that people are familiar with, like fresh sausages, for, for example, which uh, under EU rules uh, wouldn't be meant to come from Britain into, into Northern Ireland. There had been uh, leeway given on that, but uh, everyone had wondered what was happening as, uh, when that ran out. Now, there will be uh, changes which the North's businesses uh, and, and British businesses have to uh, have to comply with, particularly in the area of labelling. So products coming uh only for the uh, for the Northern Ireland market are going to have to be labelled as such in future. And obviously there are costs there for businesses which uh, the British government is promising to help them with. And obviously businesses also would have to set themselves up as trusted traders and go through some initial bureaucracy to, to sign up for the Green Lane scheme. Some of the bigger companies would already have done that. Some others are, are promised help in, in doing so. So, so overall, a, you know, a significant freeing of, of, of trade. Medicines also, there are, there are changes there. There have been specific problems in the medicines area which have been uh, chipped away at over the last while. Uh, and this is meant, I think, to be, to be a solution to that and to allow, again, to allow UK medicines to come in to Northern Ireland 
and to remove the need for for separate packages, uh, which which had been which had been a threat and would have been a big issue, I think, for the UK industry and also some other, I suppose, smaller areas like seed potatoes in Scotland will be able to come in freely. People will be able to engage in online shopping uh, in in the UK from Northern Ireland without having to fill out customs forms. So I think significant changes and probably a bit more than had been expected. I think when the deal was negotiated, a lot of this was kept under wraps. The EU has shown, I think, you know, pretty significant flexibility in drawing this all together. There had been kind of a a Jesuitical thing that there would be no changes in the Northern Ireland Protocol rules and no changes in the original treaty, if you like. Uh, and the EU say, you know, says it has it has stuck to that. But some of the some of the internal wordings have changed uh, using leeway that was in the original protocol. So there's kind of angels dancing on the head of a pin here thing a bit, I, I think, going on. But 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 overall, there is a significant changes I think for the North's businesses. I think they're going to take time to examine it. It may not be all that everyone was looking for, but I think it's certainly an improvement and a significant improvement in where we were coming from. And Cliff, just on that point about the EU showing a lot of flexibility, we know the hardline approach they took to the original Brexit negotiations and how difficult it was to get that deal over the line. So why have they been so flexible on this occasion and why have they agreed to so many changes, fundamental changes, as you described them, in this framework? I suppose there's two things there, Kieran. One is that when the protocol was originally agreed, I think a lot of things emerged over time that nobody had envisaged when it was originally agreed. So I think even people in the EU, certainly politicians in the EU, not the EU's trade experts, but a lot of the politicians were surprised with the extent of the difficulties it caused. And I think there was a genuine realisation that that change was needed here, uh, that there were genuine problems here, that this wasn't just politics, if you like, or politicians giving out, that this was causing real problems for businesses on the ground that were, for example, having to fill out these complicated supplementary declarations for each shipment arriving and real problems in things like online shopping and availability of stuff on supermarket shelves that were causing real issues for people's daily lives. And I think the other thing is that there is a degree of trust now with the current UK Prime Minister and his team that there wasn't uh, with, with, previous, with, with the previous administrations uh, and a belief, I suppose, uh, that Rishi Sunak will try and sell this deal and will try and keep to his side of the agreement, if you like, uh, and, and that the UK will will do what it has said it needs to do. And I think one of the really big things that has changed is the agreement by the UK to provide you know online information about goods moving across the Irish Sea, which uh, to the EU uh, to allow the relevant checks to be made. Previously, that you know the UK had said they wouldn't do that. That was a big issue for the uh, for the EU because they couldn't see how they could control things with other information being available. So I think when that happened, that was a big breakthrough. Stephen Kelly, uh, how do your members in manufacturing across Northern Ireland, how do they feel about this deal? I think there's growing confidence, Kieran, that what the Prime Minister and the uh, European Union have done is a significant improvement from the conditions that currently exist. Uh, we went into these discussions trying to make it clear to both the UK and the EU that the starting point was where we were today. And uh, this was about lowering the ceiling rather than actually raising the floor, as some people would have expected by the, the kind of removal of grace periods, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so as they, the kind of last couple of days have gone on, as people have begun to apply the heat of real business to uh, the framework that's been provided, I would say that they, there's growing confidence that this is something that would work because they're certainly an improvement. 
And what might it mean for sort of the flow of freight traffic across the Irish Sea? Because we have seen some displacement, haven't we? Um, a lot of it going through northern ports to the UK uh, instead of maybe going through Dublin or Rosslare. And I see that Barry O'Connell, the Dublin port uh, CEO, said that by and large um, companies have adjusted to this new arrangement and uh, things have settled down. He, did, he didn't expect any major impact, but the uh, the manager of Rosslare uh, Port, Glen Carr, was suggesting that there might be some uh, freight traffic returning to ports in the Republic. What's your view? Well, I mean, the well, what is the perception and what is the reality uh, when it comes to this protocol is is often being disputed. I mean, if, I think if you look at a couple of things of of relevance, the first is the fear that Northern Ireland's position within the UK market would be significantly undermined and not being realised. Our sales to GB have increased actually in 2021, which is the only reported numbers at this point. But we know that's continued on in 2022. Our exports to Ireland, to the EU and to the rest of the world have all increased as well in stark contrast to what's happened to businesses elsewhere in the UK. So I think that the, the reality for both hauliers, but but manufacturers, the people who produce those goods, is actually the protocol's been working pretty well for them. It's come with very significant adjustments that they've had to make. It's come with very burdensome bureaucracy that has added significantly to the cost of doing business. And it's actually removed many people from their supply chain where they would have had contracts, shared legal structures, had uh, the use of the same currency, uh, met the tastes or the demands of the Northern Ireland or the UK consumer. Uh, what I think will happen in terms of that adjustment piece, that kind of diversion of trade that some people talk about, I think there's new patterns have been formed here and those patterns are likely to continue. Where I think that there could be some uh, change here is that certainly there were many Irish businesses that were using ports in the northern part of the island uh, to, to have a lighter touch in terms of the customs process and bring products from Glasgow, for instance, through to Galway, uh, relatively pain-free. Obviously, with the introduction of the Red Channel, that will be just as red now as it's happening between Hollyhead and Dublin. Uh, but for Northern Ireland producers, they'll have a mix and an opportunity to use some of the Green Channel and some of the Red Channel. So uh, what we'll find, I think, is a kind of varying degrees of intensity of green and red as, as traders begin to adjust to this new process. Mark O'Connell, you run a Belfast-based uh, consultancy and you've described this as an opportunity to reinvigorate Northern Ireland's economy through a substantial protocol dividend. Explain to us what you mean by that. Yeah, well, I mean, building on what uh, uh, Stephen uh, has been describing, you know, business didn't hold its breath for the last two years to see what would happen and whether this could all be resolved. Um, you know, NI business um, has shown resilience and what they couldn't get from the UK because of, you know, reductions or, or even disinterest from UK uh, traders in the documentation extra burden. They they diversified supply chains, um, particularly into the Republic, and we can see um, a bloom in the north-south uh, trade figures. Equally, um, the local agency Invest Northern Ireland um, has responded well to the demands of its clients where, you know, Britain may have left Europe, but Europe's a very important trading partner, and you know, we share a, a border with Europe through the Republic. So Invest Northern Ireland have, have been sort of strengthening their office footprint and resource footprint in markets, key markets like Germany, Netherlands, France, uh, as well as uh, uh, the Republic to reflect 
the ambitions of uh, Northern Ireland exporters, which are, you know, at some ways, they were already uh, demonstrating the resilience. And I think this uh, protocol dividend is going to, you know, lift a lot of um, interest, uh, both from indigenous uh, in 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 the export opportunity and the dual market access, but equally, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know you've already heard the clamour from Scotland and the North England going, why can't we have a a, a Windsor uh, framework? We didn't we didn't vote to leave, uh, and even more kind of uh, I suppose ironically, Richie Sunak, you know, in Belfast yesterday at the Coca Cola plant, well actually in Lisburn, you know, uh, I suppose. Uh, sounding uh, the unique opportunity that uh, you know Northern Ireland has in this uh, dual market access, um, which is something um, you know that uh, you know Britain had about six years ago or even two years ago. Um, you know the access to the UK as well internal market as well as Europe. But so Northern Ireland genuinely does have. A, I was I'm up in the northwest and I heard an engineering firm yesterday say to me, "God, let's hope to." The Brits don't, um, you know, realize their mistake and rejoin Europe because it'll take away our unique competitive advantage here in Northern Ireland. <laughs> so, I mean, it's funny how, uh, you know, things come full circle. Anyhow, I mean, the, to, to answer your specific uh, question, you know, I would anticipate, I, we've been modeling the impact of the Good Friday Agreement on the economy over the last 25 years and effectively the Northern Ireland economy from a very low base has has doubled in that 25-year period. And our economists have looked at uh, various models and projections with uh, stability, government in place, and the protocol operating as it should. And they're predicting that by within the next 10 years, we could leapfrog um, our GDP by 50%. Um, and that's through a combination of FDI, because Northern Ireland is going to be extremely attractive to British firms, who want the dual market access? So we could see some. Uh, uh, we're already seeing some interest from mainland GB, but equally um, European firms who want uh, European headquarters, dual market access. The same for American corporations who are maybe overheating a little bit in the Republic because of the cost base and see the advantage of a, a foot in Northern Ireland. So FDI is one dimension, trade links and expansion of trade routes, and of course. Um, even related to that, um, you know, we're expecting additional connectivity through ports and airports, a growth in the number of uh, places or destinations being served. That'll also have an impact on tourism, which, you know, pre-pandemic was about 8 million uh, visitors to Northern Ireland. We're predicting that might go to 12 million over the next 10 years. So again, you know, a number of indicators across uh, trade, investment, tourism, and local enterprise that we think are extremely well positioned now, thanks to this, uh, I suppose, new entente with uh, Europe between the UK and Europe. Yeah, that's all the positive, I, I suppose. But there is a political dimension to this, isn't there? Because there isn't a, a sitting Stormont executive at the minute, and that means that certain decisions um, can't be made. There's a there's a freeze on certain things uh, locally. So what's your sense of whether we, the DUP has has said that, um, you know, there are some parts of this agreement um, that are welcome, but they need more time to consider other parts. So, so a sense that uh, maybe this might not meet um, all of their wishes. Well, I'm sure it doesn't, um, but no clear 
sense of whether they're going to go back into into Stormont. So how does that impact the local economy? Well, look, the DUP are increasingly finding themselves, you know, um, on the margins. I mean, the, the, I, I, I sense from what, you know, the, you know, from Westminster that uh, the British electorate uh, and, and representation, of even the extremes of ERG and Brexit are, you know, falling into line here. Uh, because everyone's a little bit exasperated and bored by the internal argument and Brexit and, you know, nastiness, and they want to move on with their lives. And I think, you know, England in particular, you know, ha- has had enough um, and want to sort of, I suppose, reproche, a rapprochement with Europe that this seems to deliver. Uh, and there's, of course, pressure from the US with, you know, Biden's imminent visit to ensure that, you know, we're not threatening uh, peace and stability on the island of Ireland anyway um, through uh, politicking. So that's a big context. So the the DUP, you know, again, um, you know, if they're listening to the voice of the business community in Northern Ireland, probably represented by Stephen more than me, uh, and even the farmers who have had probably the worst, the food and farming community has had the worst sort of uh, disruption in some in some ways from um the, the 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 Brexit um, and the, the the uncertainty about the protocol. I sense that even there's there's talk of a split in the DUP, but um, you know generally you know when you're when you're worried about losing your seat and power, you tend to fall into line. And I wouldn't I would feel that you know pragmatism will prevail, or they're risking further isolation, which can't be good. You know at the at the polling station um, in uh, in a few months. Stephen, the politics of Northern Ireland are complex, but is there a message from the business community to the DUP to get behind this deal? I, as I said at the start, I think there's growing confidence that this is something that will really work. And you kind of consider the two options here. The, the first is that we accept that this is a significant move on from the current arrangements. So that's a very positive thing. You accept that uh, the eyes of the world are on Northern Ireland right now. And you need to capture that opportunity, except that the eyes of the world will be back on Northern Ireland again in April. And you actually have politicians there with local accents out pitching on behalf of Northern Ireland's economy and communities. Uh, You accept that actually, whilst we're from this part of the world, that actually the world doesn't rotate around us, but the world continues to rotate uh, around other issues as well. Uh, the, The US were very concerned that this essentially was like two major NATO partners Having a squabble in the middle of a war on its on its eastern uh, in its eastern flank, uh, we know that uh, that the US, the EU, and indeed the UK government are prepared to invest significantly in Northern Ireland, uh, both uh, politically but also economically as well, uh, and that there's those packages there on the table ready to go to help actually regrow our skills base, regrow our economy, and provide for better lives for the people here. So you can accept all of that. Uh, or you can continue to be uh, outside of government and actually being viewed as a blockage uh, in uh, in those relationships which have uh, geopolitical significance and not just a local significance. Everyone's given the DUP time. Uh, everyone's given the Conservative Party time to understand what this deal means, uh, to, to recognise that perfect was never possible. And this is the balance, as the Prime Minister said to us yesterday, this is the balance that needed to be struck. Uh, and and everyone's willing to give that time, but time and the clock is ticking, and as every day passes, the sand on which 
uh, the the leader of the DUP and others uh, are standing is was, is potentially and at risk of being washed away by waves. And uh, it's important that whilst we appreciate that time would be required and no one wants to push anybody into to doing anything, that actually time isn't necessarily your friend either. We need to get on with this. Bank the improvements that have been uh, delivered. Bank the improvements in terms of the relationship between the UK and the EU and move on to a more prosperous 25 years, as Mark has outlined. Cliff, is this effectively a done deal by Rishi Sunak or is he actually going to put it to a vote in Westminster and you know give the DUP an opportunity to say yeah or nay? Yeah, he's promised to uh, put it to a vote, uh, Kieran. We don't know when. Uh, he'll certainly win that vote because the Labour Party will will support him. Uh, the, the issue, I, I suppose, for him politically is how many on his own benches uh, would vote against a deal? Uh, what would the hardline Brexiteers do, the ERG do? I mean, as, uh, as Mark and Stephen were saying, there does seem to be a change of mood in the UK as well. People want to move up, move on from this. Um, there's a feeling that, you know, an increased realisation of the economic price uh, that the UK as a whole is paying for Brexit uh, over the last uh, year or so, you know, has become become a really big issue. So politically, you know, perhaps uh, Rishi Sunak has, has, has chosen a good moment to do this. Um, the question then is, you know, if the DUP says no, what happens to the deal? Uh, you would have to think that you push ahead with the deal, uh, that the relationships with the EU, the improved relationship with the EU, which it, which it brings, is very important from uh, the British point of view. Uh, the options it opens up in terms of relationships with the US. So it's very hard to see Rishi Sunak having negotiated this deal having made such progress, kind of walking away from it and saying to DUP, oh, you're against it, sure, we'll, we won't bother. So, it, it, you know, he, he will surely be under pressure politically to, uh, to push ahead with it. I mean, who knows how, how, the, how the Tory politics will fall on that, but uh, it's, it's hard to see this deal not being, not being implemented now. Kieran, if I could maybe just add another point. This is a done deal. Uh, this will not be revisited uh, until at least 2025, 2026 whenever the UK and the EU have a natural break in the uh, trade and cooperation agreement that they've secured with each other. Uh, everybody's moving on and uh, there won't be an opportunity to, to renegotiate any of this. I think the uh, assumption from, from some parties may well be that they're comfortable with the status quo. Uh, yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's clumsy. Yes, it's expensive. Yes, it's caused disruption not only to our economy, but to, uh, to our, our politics. Uh, but, but it isn't a safe assumption to say that the status quo, should this deal not be accepted, would be where we would fall back to. Uh, the current protocol operates under easements, uh, grace periods, which were built on legally shaky ground, and the UK and EU already know that themselves, open to challenge internationally. The UK then unilaterally extended those grace periods, which they know is a position that's not defensible. So what we've ended up here with is, is something that people are just turning a blind eye to currently. And the status quo will not be uh, will not be possible if this agreement isn't proceeded with. So the UK is going to move on. The EU is going to move on. And hopefully Northern Ireland politics can move on alongside it. But Stephen, what happens if the DUP doesn't agree to go back into Stormont? Well, it's a big challenge for us, but as, as Mark said at the at the top of the, your, your podcast there, business has not been waiting for the last two years. Business has decided 
uh, that guess what? When they wake on a Monday morning, they're not hugely concerned about politics or the geopolitics of, of what's going on across the globe. They're really, really concerned meeting customer expectation, making sure that they get product shipped to that customer and the check clears their bank so that they can pay the wages. Uh, that will always be the case and that will always be the position which we'll have to take. The, the pressures on business are enormous right now and it would be great if we had our political colleagues alongside us to try to tackle some of those. Uh, but business will, by necessity, will have to continue on. Yeah, Mark, on the face of it, it does seem like Northern Ireland is uh, is going to be in a privileged position of foot and boat camps, if you like, uh, access to the UK market and uh, access for goods to the European market without, uh, you know, without without the red tape um, that, let's say, British uh, companies are going to face. Um, and you mentioned the, you know, the potential for GDP uh, growth earlier. I just wonder, are there any examples of over the past couple of years of how Northern Ireland has uh, has been able to um, make good on that potential dividend? Well, if you look at sort of north-south trade, um, it's sort of record levels. So, you know, the 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 all island of Ireland prize economically has been, um, I suppose, accelerated uh, by by the Brexit, and uh, and that's not just in terms of goods and services, which uh, you only have to stand, uh, you know, at the Apple Green uh, on the M1 to see the increased levels of traffic, uh, tra- you know, cargo uh, moving north and south. Um, but equally, tourism, you know, has had a bounce and uh, there's uh, much more, I would say, engagement by um, the, uh, the southern tourist with, with the North, north offer, which is you know, underpotentialized and um, and you know, relatively affordable compared to some of the uh, more local options. So those are very tangible, and uh, I, I haven't got statistics in my pocket here, but you know, they're 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 widely available, and that has been um, a, a, a short-term dividend, I would say. But equally, um, you know, we would be aware of a number of businesses that we've advised from Germany, the Netherlands, even the US, who before this was all settled, already saw that, you know, this unique status is going to be potentially very interesting from a manufacturing point of view, where you can make it in one place and sell it in both very significant markets. Um, And Northern Ireland has, as Stephen can articulate better than me, a very strong um, skills and manufacturing um, you know, excellence uh, tradition. Now, I would be aware that there's a strong pipeline of projects are just waiting for the fog to clear in terms of, uh, well, ideally a functioning executive, which signs off on some of the sort of funding and uh, support mechanisms that are in place. But equally, just, uh, you know, if there's doubts around, um, you know, politics and economic stability, it tends to sort of scare investors a little bit. Um, so that that's a kind of manufacturing um, potential bounce that's uh, you know pent up. Uh, you know, uh, Stephen used the analogy of waves. There's a wave building here, and we need to be ready to receive it. I'm even a bit concerned about uh, our capacity to absorb the the demand for skills and sites that will be uh, upon us. Um, and as Stephen said, you know, this deal is done. Uh, if our local politicians can't embrace it. There'll be a workaround, you know, a direct rule one or a, a new arrangement 
uh, where the, the the mechanisms that exist today get overruled. Now that's going to take time and you know constitutional uh, change. But um, you know Northern Ireland Inc. has sort of got is used to disappointment from its political leadership, if I can put it that way. Um, and you know since the Good Friday agreement was signed, we've probably had as much downtime as we've had sitting time in our executive, yet it hasn't stopped uh, uh, 100% growth in so many of the indicators from enterprise to tourism to trade to investment. So that didn't happen because of political leadership. It happened in spite of it. Cliff, just to take up a point that uh, Mark was making, I wonder, would will some of the investment that might have been directed towards here or some of it that's already here... Uh, might it seep uh, north of the border, especially given some of the pressures that we have down in the Republic, uh, particularly around housing and cost of living? Yeah, I thought that was an interesting point, and I think that could uh, that could easily happen, uh, particularly as this as this whole whole thing settles down. I mean, as we've seen over the last few days, business groups in the Republic really starting to warn more and more strongly about the problems, for example, of finding housing uh, down here at affordable prices, and I think. There's no doubt uh, that some of those, at least in sectors where it would suit, will look to the north for, for for future expansion. I mean, I think in terms of the general point of attracting inward investment to Northern Ireland, I mean, I think Mark is right. Political stability is an important backdrop to that. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me to hear that a lot of investors are now sitting on the sidelines, projects ready to go, waiting to see how this all pans out and, and, and how it settles. And I mean, if you were to take an optimistic scenario where the institutions are restart, are restarted, uh, there's a new executive in place, uh, and a clear message is sent out, uh, you know, around the world uh, that Northern Ireland, you know, is open for business, uh, you know, has a stable political structure now, and wants to work this agreement. I, I think that would, you know, lead to a really powerful acceleration of, of inward investment potentially into Northern Ireland, as well as investment from companies. Uh, that are there already. Um, and, and I think, you know, as I think Stephen said earlier, the UK and the EU w- will be ready to help here. Uh, there would be investment you would expect on hand in, in various sources to help uh, upskill uh, and, and provide improved education and, and skills in Northern Ireland because everybody will be invested in wanting to make this work. You know, on the flip side, if, 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 if Storm doesn't restart it, then you would have to reckon that a lot of firms will, will still sit on the sidelines and kind of wonder, well, how is this all going to play out uh, over, over the next uh, over the next few months? And, and you know, there'll be an opportunity missed there. And one of the interesting parts of the agreement as well is the is the so-called storm and break, uh, wh- which allows um, thirty MLAs uh, in 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 the Northern Ireland Assembly uh, to petition uh, the UK to uh, allow. Um, for, for rules coming in from the EU not to be applied in Northern Ireland. And I suppose that will be, there, there might be an issue in the back of uh, business people's mind about that as well. You know, what's that going to mean for the sector they're operating in if in the future the Assembly doesn't, or Northern Ireland's politicians don't like uh, some of the new rules coming in? Uh, could it lead to kind of a bit of guerrilla warfare where everything is uh, everything is objected to? Every new rule coming in is objected to. Everything goes to London. There's a lot of new uncertainty there. So not only, I think, ideally for business, do you need a new assembly and executive up and running, but you need a clear message from the North's politicians that they want to make this work. Yeah, the wording around that is a bit woolly, isn't it? I mean, they say the break cannot be triggered for trivial reasons, but what's a 
What's a, a trivial uh, reason? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's unclear. You know, it's clearly a device uh, used uh, for a legitimate reason to uh, have some domestic consent from the North's politicians uh, for, for new rules being imposed in Northern Ireland, which, which is fair enough from the political point of view. But I guess from the economic point of view, it just does introduce a little uncertainty there uh, into how this is going to work. Uh, how often might it be triggered uh, and what are the practical implications if, for example, there are new EU rules coming in across the Union which are not going to be applied in Northern Ireland and how that situation would be dealt with. A final question for you, Cliff. Uh, does this make a United Ireland any more or less likely? <laughs> um, I suppose you'd have to you'd have to reckon that, you know, in longer term politically the wind is has you know, the wind is moving in that direction. Um you could argue that uh, if Northern Ireland's politicians, uh, including the unionists, you know, work together to try and make this work, they would be able to point to to the electorate there as as Northern Ireland as as kind of a functioning a functioning political entity and and one that is delivering for its citizens. Uh, so, so so you know that could be an argument uh, that could be made against against a United Ireland or for Northern Ireland retaining its current status. Uh, but but I think there's. There's a long way to go in that argument yet, uh, and a lot of things to be worked out. So um, let's get over this. Let's get over this hurdle first, and hopefully get the Northern Ireland economy operating at a higher level uh, over the next five or ten years. Okay, we'll leave you there, Mark O'Connell, Stephen Kelly, and Cliff Taylor. Thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, Joe Brennan of the Irish Times will join me to talk about developments at Digicel, Dennis O'Brien's telecoms company in the Caribbean. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. On Wednesday morning, it emerged that Dennis O'Brien would likely see the majority stake in Digicel to bondholders as part of a major financial restructuring of the telco he founded more than 20 years ago. Joe Brennan has covered the twists and turns in his story of late, and he joined me earlier to discuss the significance of this move. Here we go. Joe Brennan, a bit of a bombshell this morning with news that Digicel's founder and owner, Dennis O'Brien, is set to seek control of the company under an agreement uh, with a group of bond creditors to swap $1.8 billion of the heavily indebted group's borrowings into an equity stake. So effectively, he's going to lose majority control. Talk to us about the background to this. How did this happen? Yeah, so this is the third time that uh, Dennis O'Brien has gone about restructuring the debt, uh, the, the oversized debt of, of Digicel in the last uh, four uh, years or so. And in the previous two times, the, the, the bondholders blinked most recently back in 2020, just at the onset of the, the COVID crisis, where basically Digital was looking to uh, refinance a, a, a bond that was coming uh, due in 2021. And it basically brought about a restructuring of the debt. It had about seven billion of debt at that period of time, and this is debt that had been built up from the foundation of of Digicel uh, back in two thousand and one, which he set up with the proceeds of the sale of uh, ESAT uh, Telecom to BT. 
So Digicel over a period of years had built up a debt pile of about seven billion, and and, and mainly financed through the the so called U.S. junk bond markets, which are kind of high cost, high yield markets for for companies that would have low credit ratings. And about five billion had been spent over the years in developing a network across uh, thirty three countries across the Caribbean, Central America, and and the Pacific region, but also. It had been a bit of a cash cow, Digicel, as well, for and an ATM for 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 Dennis O'Brien. Uh, certainly, the uh, disclosed level of dividends that were pulled out from Digicel in the period between 2007 and 2015 was in the order of about 1.9 billion. So this is a highly highly leveraged business. So if you go back to even 2015, Digicel was actually looking to to IPO, um, and it was very close to IPOing in late 2015 which would have seen Digicel uh, basically raise about $2 billion of fresh equity, and the proceeds were expected to, to pay down debt. But Dennis O'Brien pulled that deal very, very late in the day when it was clear that the pricing of the deal would result in the new investors taking a, a 50% or greater than 50% stake in, in the business. So it remained kind of highly indebted at a period of time when earnings were continuing to decline, so the, the debt burden relative to the earnings was, was increasing over time. So in 20, 2018, going to 2019, the first restructuring uh, happened. And basically, uh, Dennis O'Brien got bondholders to agree, bondholders owed about $3 billion at that stage, to agree to extending the lifetime or postponing the repayment of bonds that were due between 2020 and 2020, 2022 by a further two years. So that was kind of a, a, a mild restructuring. It, it only was a basically a, a, an extend and pretend, but it had to go back again. And back in 2020, as I referenced there uh, earlier, it went about trying to restructure the debt. And it struck at a time when there was maximum uncertainty uh, in the market, just given that COVID uh, had struck, financial markets are all over the place, bondholders were nervous, and it secured a $1.6 billion write-off against the uh, against the. Um, the seven billion debt at that stage, and there was a, a view ahead of that that Digicel, that Dennis O'Brien would have to commit some sort of equity to, you know, incentivize or, or sweeten the deal for for bondholders. But he got away with um, basically putting minimal amount of equity. I think it was fifty million, half that by way of cash and half of that by way of the uh, the, the property assets, the headquarters of the business, which he owned in his own name in in, in Jamaica. Um, but it continued uh, after that. Uh, obviously, we saw financial markets uh, pick up and we saw central banks pumping trillions of dollars into financial markets. And we saw the the cost of, of, of debt fall uh, quite dramatically as there was low yielding assets and uh, high yield bonds like the Digicel bonds were, were in demand. And there was a period of time when potentially maybe in late 2021, where he could have gone about refinancing bonds that were due in this very day, actually, March the 1st of uh, of 2023. He could have gone refinancing that. And also, there was an added bonus that uh, Digicel was uh, in the process back in late 2021 of selling off its its Pacific business, which it would end up selling last July uh, for the region of 1.6. It's a $1.6 billion uh, deal. The initial proceeds of a 1.2 were used to pay down uh, some bonds that were due in 2024. Since then, uh, the Pacific deal was completed, but markets turned uh, quite aggressively 
Um, last year, as obviously we all know, that inflation was going through the roof. Central banks were raising interest rates. And the part of the market that was most affected where rates moved higher than everywhere else was in the US high yield uh, junk bond market, which was beloved by Dennis O'Brien over the years for, for financing his business. So it was going to be very difficult to refinance those bonds. So in November, early December, it became clear. Uh, we reported that Dennis O'Brien was looking to do another kind of extension, basically trying to push out the, uh, the, the, the maturities of the bonds that were due today. But in the meantime, Haiti, which had become which was one of his bigger markets and was increasingly a, a bigger uh, part of the business relative uh, to the overall business post the sale of the Pacific region. Haiti has gone from one kind of natural disaster, political crisis to the next, and it's it's going through a, a, a period of huge turmoil uh, since late last year. And it came out and Digicel warned that profits, earnings in the Haiti business would be down by two thirds in the second half of its financial year, which is due to end at the end of, of this month. So that really kind of concentrated minds. And now it's clear um, it, it was getting closer to the the deadline of today for uh, for paying back the bonds. Digicel had been talking to its major bondholders for, for, for a period of months, but Late last week, it went about trying to uh, secure a kind of a 30-day initial grace period or a, a standstill from the wider uh, collection of bondholders to try and strike out this bigger restructuring deal. Um, I think there was an expectation, given that Dennis had managed to uh, force bondholders into uh, accepting write-downs with minimal input from him, that this would be Another case of that, and certainly a, a piece, a, a column I wrote, uh, which didn't end, uh, did, didn't age well. I wrote last last Saturday, kind of went in that direction where there was an expectation that again uh, bondholders would be the ones who would lie down and accept the losses. But it's now clear that bondholders are now extracting from from Dennis O'Brien. Basically, the deal it's a, it's only a deal that's agreed in principle between the the major bondholders, which needs to be put to the wider collection of bondholders. We'll see Dennis ceding a majority stake in the business to to bondholders as part of a deal to write down 1.8 billion of debt. You were correct at the time, Joe, of course, that's the key thing. But uh, Joe, I suppose just just finally, that's a very good summation of uh, everything that's happened over the last number of years. Uh, just finally and quickly, um, do we know precisely what stake Dennis O'Brien is going to have going forward? And do we know if he's going to continue to call the shots and how the business is run? Yeah, so we don't know exactly the stake he he, he has in, in future. The situation is kind of complicated by the restructuring deal that was struck in 2020. As part of that deal, a group of bondholders were given basically $200 million worth of convertible notes, which were convertible into equity in this business if they weren't redeemed before the beginning of June. So they were convertible over a period of 10 years. They, the, the bondholders could convert that into an equity stake of about 49%. Some of those bonds were bought back a few years ago, and basically what was left would have been convertible into a 46% stake. It is likely that that deal is going to be restructured as part of this this deal, and you'll see the bondholders that are owed the greater chunk of money, which would be also some of the bondholders that are actually holders of these convertible notes, will uh, take majority stake. We don't know what stake it will be, but this is going to be a sizable majority stake that's going to be held by bondholders. We're told that Dennis O'Brien will remain a director uh, of the business uh, following the deal and will have uh, an equity stake in the business. We just don't know the size of that business. 
and I suppose that also raises the question in future, would Dennis O'Brien, who didn't like the idea of uh, giving over a controlling stake to to uh, stock market investors back in 2025, would be particularly interested in having, you know, remaining a long-term investor in a business where it is effectively controlled by a bunch of uh, bondholders who have their own agendas and his, his stake at the table is somewhat limited. Joe Brennan, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Mark O'Connell, Cliff Taylor, Stephen Kelly, and Joe Brennan for joining me on the show. Declan Conlon produced the program with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. <laughs>